a fallout shelter somewhere under Seattle, Washington, is the show you've been waiting for. Get ready to join your hosts, John and Kendrick, as they talk comics, movies, and more. Now here's Spoiler Country! Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on scpod.net. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcatcher, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us, leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. United Armies of the Spoilerverse, welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenneth Regan. That is Mr. Horsley. And today on the show, well, it's our good friend, Ron Randall. Yeah, he's back. Yeah, and this one's a little different. It's a little deeper into his career. And our man on the street, Casey T. Allen, took helm on this and really dove deep. Yeah, I told Casey when I talked to him, I said, hey, you want to talk to Ron Randall? And he's like, yeah, why wouldn't I want to talk to Ron Randall? And I was like, well, here's what, here's what I want you to do. I want you to talk about his career, talk about his comics and stuff that he's done out in that world and and just talk to him as, as kind of go more into what he's done throughout his entire career versus just, you know, as we have focused on Trekker and a couple things here and there, he he spent a lot yeah. of time going into everything, which is which is great. And the way Casey does things, it kind of we get a lot of uh, a lot of good information out of this. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I was excited. I was excited for this because, uh, uh, you know, we've talked to Ron a few times. So this will be Ron's seventh appearance on the show, which is pretty wow. cool. And he does have a Kickstarter going right now. So I'll have that in the show notes below for you to click on to go check out for the Trekker Complete Journey. So it's it's active for like right about another week or so at the time of this posting. Yeah. But it just Ron's always a, a breath of fresh air to talk to because he's such a nice guy. Oh, man. He does great work. One, he does great work. Yeah. Two, he's just super. He's just a super great human being. Agreed. Agreed. You know, and he's just, he is a lot of fun to talk to. The few times that I have been able to talk to him, we've always laughed and joked and, and he, you know, and he spends a good yarn. He so, does. He does. You know, I hope you guys really enjoy this. So why don't we just get into it? All right, welcome again to another episode of Spoiler Country. My name is Casey Allen, and today we have our pal Ron Randall back on. Ron Randall has a ongoing Kickstarter campaign for his book, Trekker, The Complete Journey, Volume 1. So uh, do what you have to do. Get on the computer right now, trekkerskickstarter.com. And uh, get that book. This is a compendium uh, book of the first few Trekker stories that have been out of print since uh, since Dark Horse stopped printing them. Uh, Ron, how you doing, man? Good, good. I'm doing great, Casey. Thanks for having me on the show again. Ah, it's, it's, it's a pleasure to have you. And so where, where are you at right now? Um, in Portland, Oregon. What's in the water in the Pacific Northwest? Because it, it seems like you can't throw a rock up there without hitting a comic person. I mean, I, I'm in I'm in Birmingham, Alabama, and all we have is Jason Aaron, and that's only when he's visiting family. So, 
Well, it's it's kind of a mysterious thing. I'm in, I'm actually in a, a a member of a big studio up here in Portland called Helioscope Studio. That's full of cartoonists. We have a, a roughly 25 members of the studio, all um, you know, working professional comic book artists, and that's just the uh, the tip of the iceberg of the comic books community here in Portland. Um, we have um, and we've been a studio since. 2002 uh so we've grown from about six members up to you know our 25 or whatever we have now and periodically throughout the years we we sort of have seen you know um more and more cartoonists were gravitated toward the pacific northwest and we would often say to ourselves what's what's going on here why why are they all coming up here to portland and there's probably you know um a variety of factors that went into it. Uh, we we have a few comic book publishers that are based here in Portland now. Dark Horse is here. Oni Press is here. Now Image Comics is also based here in Portland, um, and others in the area as well. So that's you know that that can be one attraction for for people that want to be editors, especially you know you've got to move to where the where the companies are. Um, and freelancers, you know, it, it's it can be handy to have that sort of uh, be in that sort of proximity to different publishers and stuff. Um, but also just some creators started moving here. Word got around that it was, especially then, it was a fairly livable city. It's it's a little bit less so now because the population overall has also swollen, and you know that makes that makes the cost of living go up and that sort of stuff. But for a long time, it was the, it was just a very uh, it's a very cartoonist friendly environment. You could you could come here and uh, start to make your way. So um, it just snowballed from there. Yeah. So it, is it helpful to have that many comics folks? around or does it even matter because it seems kind of like it's also an an insular pursuit uh is it helpful to to at least you know kind of have people to talk to oh tremendously for i mean everybody's got their own you know temperament personality the the the, their best ways of working or whatever but uh i know that for me i um i thrive on on those connections and contacts they're it's good to have the camaraderie sometimes. It's good to have somebody to bounce ideas off of. Sometimes you um, get good feedback on your art or suggestions for, you know, ways to go to try to pursue getting another assignment if you need it. Or maybe you're overcommitted on work. You can get somebody to lend a helping hand for a job. Maybe somebody just found out some new tool to use in Photoshop or, you know, uh, Manga Studio or Clip Art or whatever. Um uh, or found a new marker that works great, um, or heard about a new convention that they went to and, and is well run. Uh, so that sort of um, that sort of networking is is invaluable. Uh, it's it's handy in lots and lots of ways. I, I probably um, I would have had a very difficult time. I'll put it this way: um, finding my way into how to how to work with Kickstarter, something that I was completely ignorant about when I first realized I might. Uh, that that might be my best avenue for for getting tracker books out. But I had some great studio mates who were very generous with their time and their advice uh, that had experience with Kickstarter, and really helped me to um, to figure out at least to to get my brain roughly wrapped around Kickstarter to the point where I felt I could try to build and run a campaign competently. So um, in in many in many ways, I, I find it a terrific experience for me to to have this group of people around. They also happen to be pretty great people in my studio too, so can't complain. <laughs> that that's that's rad. And, and you started off um, go, going back. I mean, you, you're in in this studio now, but you you started off working with a, a bunch of uh, 
really great talents, even back when you were in at Kubert School. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, I can. And I guess also I want to follow up. Uh, I'll get into that in a second, but I also want to follow up on your comment about how you know being a comic book artist is an insular thing. And and that is you're absolutely right about that. Um, none of what I just said before is is meant to um, take away from the core brutal fact that if you want to do this sort of thing for a living, you have got to make peace with the fact. No, it's more than that. You have to enjoy spending a lot of time all alone in your head, you know, wrestling with your art, you know, turning out page after page after page that you're dissatisfied with and stubbornly keeping at it. Um, because otherwise there's just no way you're going to be able to be good enough to, to make a professional, um, you know, to make this into a profession. Um, so yes, it's, it's a very solitary pursuit in a lot of ways and it's, you've got to be driven from within that said, it's always you know nice to periodically get some outside uh, stimulation or challenge or pushback or whatever, just to keep you going and growing. Um, so the Kubert School, yeah, I I, uh, I went there in at the end of the seventies. It had to just start, so we're talking you know the Stone Age to a lot of people. But um, uh, I had been in college for a couple of years, had always loved comic books. Again, I was tucked up here in the sleepy. Pacific Northwest, where, as far as I knew, <laughs> I was the only one in this part of the world <laughs> that was interested in possibly becoming a professional cartoonist. Turns out there were some other artists living in town that had the same aspirations, but there was no internet. There was very few you know, fan groups around, so I didn't have any connections with these people. So I was out here 3,000 miles away from the comic book industry, which is back in, you know, back in the middle of Manhattan Island. Um, so it seemed like a very remote possibility. I didn't know how I could make something like that happen. There was no, there wasn't FedEx. There was no, you know, there weren't even fax machines back then. So you were a long ways away from the action out here. But I, you know, I had the comic making bug had really bitten hard on me. And uh, it was, uh, it was just something I, I kept, I kept making comics for my own enjoyment and designing characters, not really having a plan for how it was going to turn into anything. And then I heard about the Joe Kubert school. I saw an ad for it in a, comics swap news magazine that was coming out back then and uh, joe kubert was already a legend as an artist uh i was a huge admirer of his work on tarzan that he did for dc back in the 70s and you know, sergeant rock and enemy Ace characters that he had co-created and had done you know revelatory work in um he was starting up a school an artist that i desperately admired was starting up a school and maybe i could go to his school you know so uh I applied, which at that time meant you know, putting together samples of the art that I'd been doing in my college art classes <laughs> and some of my crude and rudimentary comics that I've been drawing for my own amusement, I guess, as much as anything else. And I sent them off to the Cuban school. <laughs> um, wound up having a phone interview with Joe himself, which is, you know, my spine was tingling uh, to talk to him on the phone. Um, got accepted to the school, and the next thing I know, I'm standing in the middle of Dover, New Jersey, at, at the at the Joe Kubert School. Me and a bunch of other, um, mostly guys. There were a few w women, but but it was mostly guys who all had probably very similar backgrounds in that we had felt like misfits in whatever schools we had been into because we all had this <laughs> usually closeted love <laughs> and passion about comic books. And all of a sudden, here we were, just an entire hive of us that all had very much a shared similar passion. Um, 
uh, back then the school was, there was this, this old mansion in the middle of, uh, the town. Uh, and, uh, I often say to people, it's sort of like the movie animal house, except full of nerdy cartoon boys. <laughs> and, um, the, the school is new. So the curriculum is still sort of, you know, being worked out and stuff. So the organization wasn't all that great, but, um, we had some, some teachers who weren't experienced teachers, but these were men and women who had, you know, 20, 25 years of comics making experience or commercial art experience under the belts at the time. So they could speak with the voice of experience and authority. Um, we just had to be smart enough to take advantage of it. And sometimes we would have to ask the instructors uh, for questions or demonstrations because, again, they weren't a lot of them trained as teachers and, and that sort of stuff. But if you if you saw one of them and said, I'm having trouble trying to figure out how to like ink trees and you put your brush in their hand and let them demonstrate, you know, not by telling you how to do it, by showing you how to do it. Um, it was, it was a powerful learning opportunity experience. And, uh, so the instructors are great and Joe himself taught some of the classes and, you know, you can imagine. Um, and just as much, I think I, I have was enriched and benefited from, my classmates uh i was in class well i was in the second year the class above us the upperclassmen included steve Bissett and rick beach and tom yates people like that and my classmates were people like john toddleman and tom manbake and jan dorsima and the class under me had people like tim truman in it so uh, i don't know how many of your listeners will know those names but these are all people who have forged 30 plus years in comics sometimes doing revolutionary or innovative work um and uh they've all reached pretty <laughs> pretty close to legendary status and um these are my classmates uh we were all just sort of fighting our way you know fighting our way to, to see if we could claw a, a career for ourselves in this stuff um and uh those bonds that we made back in those days are pretty strong to the state there's still my dearest and closest friends are many of those people oh and i forgot to mention carl kiesel he's another he was another classmate of mine who's uh, gone on to have great success both another pacific northwester too right uh, yep yep he's uh he, he uh originally from upstate new york but now he lives out here in portland too just about uh two miles down the road from me we get together for a beer once every <laughs> every month or so <laughs> oh that's awesome so I, I i noticed that you worked on uh sergeant rock with with Q, the man himself yeah yeah what so when I went to the Kubert School, uh, it's now um, it's now moved out of that that old mansion. They bought, uh, uh, I think, it's an old high school right there in the middle of, of the town, and uh, turned it into the you know the Kubert School. So it's much bigger and much more, um, you know, much more, much um, much more structured. I guess is a good way to put it. Now uh, it was kind of loosey goosey when we went, in, but in a good way. Uh, but anyway, so when I went in, there it was a two year program. It's now a three year program. But I always say that my my third year of the Kubert School was the year after I graduated, because when I graduated, it was a very small school and our very small graduating class at the time. But in my graduating class, there were about, I think, five or six of us who were the ones who seemed the most um, committed towards a comic book career specifically. Other people graduated from the school and were trying to pursue other commercial art avenues. But we were the comic book makers or the aspiring comic book makers and joe sort of handpicked us and would he was editing the the sergeant rock book at the time and he would give us these little two three or four page stories uh, scripts um that we were going to draw and would appear in the back of 
the Sergeant Rock comic book. So professionally published work from DC Comics. Uh, <laughs> it's a great opportunity, of course. But what was even better was that we would, I would be given a script. I would go home and I'd work out my thumbnails. And the thumbnails are the very small initial scribbly designs for, for what each panel on a page would be. And when I had them done, I would call up Joe <laughs> on my phone and uh, he would say, name a time. And then I would drive over to his house and climb the outside stairs to his above garage studio and go into Joe Kubert's studio with my little <laughs> drawings in hand, sit down at his drawing board next to him and go over my thumbnails one-on-one -on -one with Joe, where he would look at them and he'd point out other options and ways that this could, you know, the composition could be improved, the storytelling could be clarified. And he, it was just like he was just doing this information dump into my brain, a direct one-on-one -on -one transfusion of Joe Kubert storytelling. It was intense. It was inspirational. And it, it never felt like I was being sort of lectured to or beaten up. It was just Joe sharing his, his passion and enthusiasm for storytelling. And uh, he would like see a panel that I had drawn, I mean, designed in my little thumbnail. And he would very quickly dash out with his pencil three or four different angles I could have done that same shot from. And we'd go over the pros and cons and why this one might work or that one might work uh, better than what I'd done. And um, it was just an incredible experience. Um, then I would take that home, rework the thumbnails, take them back. And then we go through the same process with the pencils and with the inks. And on some of the stories, I did the lettering, too. And, and he was looking it over every step of the way. He really took that small handful of us, really sort of took us under his wing, so to speak, and really gave us a real finishing school experience in that, in that first year or so out of the Cubit School. And that led to me helping him out on um, one or two of the, the lead stories on Sergeant Rock eventually, too, which is pretty damn intimidating, you can imagine. But fortunately, Joe... He was very hands-on, especially with Rock. He was very, very protective of Sergeant Rock. And if I if I'd wound up doing some some art there that wasn't up to to snuff or close enough to snuff, Joe would take out his pens and brushes and fix it. So by the time the books came out in print, they looked pretty great because Joe put his hand on anything that needed to have his hand put on. <laughs> that's great. That's like having to act next to Orson Welles or something like that. I mean, that's just. The master working, you know, side by side with you, that that has to be uh, rather intimidating, which is well, amazing. You know, it, well, I mean, you'd think so. And it should have been the only thing that kept it from being. Well, I mean, it was a little bit intimidating. I'm not going to I'm not going to discount that. But but as I was saying, the main thing that that I mean, you were intimidated with the idea of working with Joe. But when you were sitting down next to him. He was just uh, he was just a great guy. Joe was, uh, you know, he if you did something that didn't work, he would tell you it didn't work. But again, it, you never took it personally. It was never like he was trying to beat you up. Joe had nothing to prove. He didn't need to, you know. So he just he was just sharing. Again, it just it just felt very collegial, really. I mean, he was just like sharing ideas with you. Um, so it was very um, sort of disarming or something. I mean, it just was it was far from uh, intimidating. I mean, I'd be taking my pages to him on a. Somewhat, I would be a little bit nervous because I'm taking pages to have Joe Kubert look at. But I was also so excited and enthusiastic. What's Joe going to tell me? You know, every once in a while you do a panel that worked out and he'd say that and you'd feel like a million bucks. And then when he pointed out something different, 
usually I was smart enough to recognize that somebody had just dropped a gold, you know, a, a gold nugget in my brain because uh, all of his advice was priceless. So um, uh, it could have been a lot more intimidating had Joe had a different sort of personality or stance, but he was just a warm, generous guy. And uh, that that made it, um, you know, I think I learned almost as much from him about that stuff, about being generous and, and giving in your art and working well on that level. That was almost, you know, in some ways, maybe more lessons about being a human being than being an artist. I don't want to go too far, it would be too, too sentimental about it, but it was, uh, it was a he, wonderful experience all the way around. He sounds like a really great guy. Um, he was, yeah. What, what um, did, did you get into any storytelling while you were there, or was it all just storytelling via sequential art? Um, well, I mean, that's pretty much it by that's what it was. Comic book storytelling. I don't know what you mean. I mean, the, the, well, the, well, uh, the as in writing, uh, writing okay. for comics. Right. Um, I wrote a few short stories, uh, that got put in the back of the Sergeant rock book too. I mean, first I was working on, on, on these short scripts from, from the writers like, uh, Robert Canada, who had uh, done a lot of writing for, for DC and worked with Joe on Sergeant rock a lot. Um, so I'd get to do a little two or three page story by a professional comic writer. Um, and, um, that's a great experience. If you have any, um, listeners out there that are comic makers on their own and are used to working from their own scripts, that's great. Um, pursuing your own ideas and your own, um, stories and inspiration is great, but you can learn a tremendous amount from having to draw a script that's written by somebody who is, not trying to draw or drawing to write a story that's going to be easy for you to draw or getting you to draw the stuff that's the most fun to draw, but getting you to draw the stuff that's going to tell the story the best. I learned a lot by having to work on stories um, that were well-written professional stories, but were asking me to draw stuff that I you know, didn't know how to draw, whether that's objects that I need to do research and, and uh, studying on or a scene that had to be blocked out and choreographed in a certain way to to really work on the on the written comic page. You're challenged, you're stretched, you learned a lot to to make those stories work sometimes. Um, so I, I started working for those other scripts, but but eventually I had a couple of ideas of my own and, and wrote them up and, and submitted them to Joe. And uh, uh, he let me pull off a few of those too uh, after I'd gotten some of the other experiences under my my belt. And that was that was a tremendous experience. I, I remember. Uh, one in particular, I, I, uh, I'd been interested in, in Songrise. Uh, when I was in high school here in Portland, the, the public TV station had this, uh, I think it was on like Saturday evenings, they had a, they called it the Japanese Film Festival. And I just stumbled onto it one day. And it was this old, you know, it's like a, from the 1950s, an old black and white movie <laughs> with a bunch of Japanese people speaking Japanese with all these subtitles. I'd never seen anything like it in my life, and so I watched some of those movies, and and this, you know, they weren't all samurai movies, but some of them were, and I was just so fascinated by this. It was like glimpsing another world, you know, the the the, the acting styles, the camera angles, the the visuals, everything, the the, the pace of the story was just so different. So, um, one of the stories I got to do for Joe was like a five page story about a about about a samurai, and. Uh, um, I, I worked so hard on that story. I put everything I had in that thing. I researched everything I could about, you know, what the samurai armor was made of and how it was sewn together and what what sort of stirrups did they have on the samurai horses 
and what were the name of the sword strokes that they used? Everything I could think about, I just threw it all into this this five page story. So it was a very intense experience. Um, but uh, uh, I still look back on that stuff and said, "Yeah, it's okay. That turned out all right." <laughs> so you, um, sorry, uh, you did the the Sergeant Rock, and, and around the same time, you also worked on a book that is really close to my heart, um, the uh, Warlord. And so, so when I, when I was a kid, um, my, my parents were going through a crazy divorce and everything. And I had an uncle that, uh, brought me just a massive box of these, uh, comics that he had gotten. And, uh, it was almost, a, a a good 30 issues of, of Warlord, which mm-hmm. at the time, uh, when I received them, it was, the big thing in comics, I think, was was X Men and Spider Man. Mm-hmm. That was the only thing I'd really had much experience with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I read this Warlord book, and it blew my mind. And uh, a lot of those issues I have were from from your from your run. Uh, <laughs> I I just wanted to thank you for that. And, and also, how was working with Mike Grell? Did you uh, did you guys work together on that, or was that? Um, uh, <sighs> I, I'm really, I guess DC owns that character. Yeah, Mike created it and um, did the, you know, did the first. I forget now how how many issues he did the first few years of it, you know, and uh, created that whole world and stuff. But uh, you know, he created it when he was, you know, working for DC. So technically, they they have ownership of it. But it's you know, it's clearly Mike's, you know, Mike's creation. Um, um, but by the time I was working on it, you know, Mike had left the. Um, the interior work chores, but, uh, um, he was still doing the covers. Um, but I didn't really work closely with Mike at all on that stuff. We, we met at a few conventions and, and have become, you know, become cordial friends, uh, in years since, but we didn't get to overlap working on the book. Um, but I was, you know, his presence was there, you know, I mean, you knew you were working, um, you were trying to, um, uh, maintain what he had what he had started. You were, you were, I was it was a caretaker role in some. You're trying to tell new stories, but you didn't want to do anything that was going to violate or degrade the um, you know the sensibility and the vision that that he he had established on this character that was so so vivid and unique. One one thing I noticed with your art style is is that you are uh, you're really adaptive to. Um, and, and able to respect the uh, the art style that you know preceded yours, so it's not jarring to the reader when they go from one issue to the next, and, and you're the the new artist on the title. Uh, is is that something that that you've you know c- comes natural to you, or is that something that you just have to kind of beat into your head as you go along? <laughs> well, first of all, thanks. Uh, I really do feel that 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 is my role in those kind of jobs where I'm uh, asked to come in and help out for a while on, on a series that already has an establishing look and a style and readership. But there, you know, if the, if the artist has gotten into deadline problems, for instance, so I'll come in and draw, you know, uh, a handful of pages of an issue or an issue or two, but it's not my job to come in there. I feel, um, and, you know, exert my own style and vision on My job is to come in there and, and be a caretaker, maintain the look so that, cause I remember as a kid, I'd read a comic, and if all of a sudden, halfway through the book, a different artist had to draw a handful of pages, it it could be just jarring, and uh, it would throw me out of the story, and it was just 
terribly dissatisfying. So, um, so I, I take that responsibility very seriously. Uh, as, and you say, does it come natural or is it, you know, hard work? Well, it's, it's kind of a little bit of both. As I say, my temperament and my, my view of what that kind of a job is, um, that's, that's what I want to do. At the same time, every artist, even, even, even artists whose styles have, have a lot of similar touchstones. Oh, we've all looked at this artist or we've all admire the way that person does that. But, but each artist is their own stew. So um, I might work with artists where we have, oh, we've both looked at oh, whoever, you know, John Byrne or Neil Adams or, um, you know, Hal Foster <laughs> or, or Al Williamson. Um, but, well, I looked at those guys, but I've also looked at a bunch of other artists that that other artist doesn't have in common. So you, you have some similarities, but some pretty profound differences in your thinking and approach to just about every artist you work with. So it's not that easy to 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 ease into that role of an artist, uh, even someone that you're kind of similar to, let alone somebody who's got a vastly different sensibility than than I have. But I, I sort of feel it's it, it's that's my job, and I I do the best I can to to get within the ballpark, you know, to to get a reasonable facsimile of what they they're doing. So in some ways, that's that's a lot of extra work. It's hard enough to just to try to tell any story you know, decently and compellingly and well when you're just worried about trying to do your own style as, as best you can, then laying on top of it that other level of, well, how can I tell the story in a, in a, in a good way that's similar to the way that artist, artist X would do, the, the one whose book I'm trying to help out with here. Um, so um, um, the other thing about that is in some ways it's a thankless task <laughs> because if I do that and I do it well, I'm not doing much to make a um, <laughs> to make a, 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 you know, a personality or make a statement of my own. I don't feel that's my job there. Um, so you're almost invisible in a little ways. Um, like I said, I think that's the job that's called for there, and I've done that plenty. Uh, I'm very happy though to also have had the opportunity to do things like Trekker, where I, I just get to be 100% me. <laughs> That that's that's awesome, and, and I, I want to talk about Trekker later, especially because uh, I'm I'm fascinated with with how you've been able to maintain it going from uh, from Dark Horse to uh, to you know creator produced. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, can I talk a little bit about the uh, the graphic novel you did with DC very early on? Oh, boy, the yeah. uh, Meet and Joe <laughs> Priest. Yeah, yeah. That um it, it fascinates me because it, it was right before they um you know, it was early eighties and I think about eighty eight was when uh Vertigo Line came about. Mm-hmm. Um they took a lot of with the uh the DC graphic novels, they took a lot of um non superhero titles and more fantasy and sci fi. Uh, of which uh, me and Joe Priest was a uh, more of like a uh, a post-apocalyptic uh, sci-fi story. Um, do you think that it it kind of helped kickstart the, their desire to start the Vertigo line just by with uh, them coming out with the uh, the early graphic novels? That's a really good question. Um, I, I don't think it directly. Uh affected the decision of the vertical line i can get into that in a second from at least from what i the way i've heard that story told but um, what i will say about 
that line of graphic novels that they had, um, it was also it was a part of the same thing that led me to the first um, the first regular assignment I had at DC after having done some you know backup stories in Sergeant Rock, like we were saying, and then did a few things in some of their mystery and House of Secrets and House of Mystery, those sort of books. And then I got this backup story. It was actually in the back of Warlord. So a few years before I was drawing the lead feature in Warlord, I was drawing a backup called The Barren Earth, which was a science fiction, sort of an Edgar Rice Burroughsy sort of uh, science fiction uh, story. Um, I was doing that, and, and some of these other stories, uh, either backup stories or titles, that were um, what we often called them back then was off-genre, meaning not superheroes, <laughs> because that's how much the superheroes were pretty much the genre of comics was superheroes, right, um, back then. But um, the executive editor of DC Comics back then uh, was a guy named Dick Giordano, who um, many people first think of him as being the guy that was inking Neil Adams when they did their work on Green Lantern, Green Arrow, and a lot of the Batman work and stuff like that. But Dick was um, a great cartoonist in his own right and a craftsman of the highest order and, um, and a good editor, too. And Dick loved crime stories and romance comics and war stories and superheroes. Eh, he could take them or leave them. So when he was running the ship at D.C., he was always encouraging editors to try to push out and find new, new genres to get into. Because he mostly wanted to draw detective stories and stuff like that, uh, not a not a real popular genre, you know, back then. Um, so, um, so I credit a lot of the diversity that DC was was pumping into comics back then, and that included things like that, the graphic novel line of science fiction and fantasy things. Uh, a lot of that, I, I I think Dick had an awful lot to to say in, in setting that setting that goal and that that um, that openness that, that inclusivity or whatever you want to call it um then as far as vertigo um you know they, they um karen berger was the editor of the swamp thing book and karen was responsible uh, again as i remember the story pretty much single-handedly for for inviting some of the british comic makers writers and artists to come over to america and start working in america including a guy named alan moore <laughs> who came over and sort of turned the comics world upside down by writing, by the way he wrote and the way my Cuba school studio mates Steve Bissett and John Tottleman drew Swamp Thing. Um, and uh, as I understand the story, it was Karen who pretty much was lobbying to create the vertical line, taking a line of comics that would be somewhat atypical to the mainstream books that DC's line consisted of, not only in genre, but also in tone and sort of more adult con adult or mature audience subject matter not meaning you know uh, just sex or something like that but just just um themes and storytelling styles that were a little bit more you know sophisticated or subtle or something um uh so in a way that branched out from from the same thinking that i, I think dick was dick giordano again was sort of um central that at uh getting started at dc uh, other people who who maybe know the inside stories more than I do, because I never worked in editorial or something like that. I was able to hang around up at the D.C. offices uh, a fair amount back in the day uh, um, when I would turn in a short story from some editor. I just sort of hang around and chat a little bit. And I heard and saw and, you know, was in some conversations, but I wasn't central to these um, to these things. So that's my little disclaimer. 
but I was there, and that's that's the story as I remember hearing it. Yeah, and, and you were actually on a title that eventually, I guess, went over to Vertigo, the uh, the Swamp Thing books, which I mean, l- like mm-hmm. you said, it was it was uh, it, integral to 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 the line. And another thing uh, earlier, you mentioned uh, writing for House of Mystery or uh, not writing, but uh, illustrating House of Mystery, mm-hmm. which you eventually came right back around full circle to when when you did the dreaming, <laughs> because right. it, it's the same guys, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that same sort of um, world with those characters and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's kind of the, the comics world is kind of a circular one, and <laughs> you can wind up having all sorts of connections and reconnections, and you never say goodbye forever. It seems <laughs> there's always a chance that you're going to wind up working on the uh, on the same characters in the same universe, or you know, sometimes even with the same collaborators years down the road. It's um, like that Doctor Manhattan meme. It's it's 1982. <laughs> I'm illustrating Cain and Abel. It's 2001. <laughs> I'm illustrating Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they become sort of old friends by now. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, in around that that same time that you were doing um, the uh, the saga of the Swamp Thing and the Swamp Thing books, um, you uh, uh, you eventually made the leap over to um, to Dark Horse, and uh, you you started Trekker in in eighty right. seven, mm-hmm. and what how how big of a leap was that for you was because you, you were, I guess, you know, fairly comfortable at DC. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was a big leap in a lot of ways. Um, like you said, I was comfortable at DC. Um, I was doing a regular monthly book for them. The warlord comic book that we were just talking about a few minutes ago. Um, yeah. Yeah. And what happened was I, um, as, as I was saying before, I, w- I had been at the Cubit school, stayed out in, in, uh, in the East coast as I was um, making my inroads and making connections and trying to insinuate myself into the comic industry. And um, after I had done enough of that, that I felt relatively confident that I might be able to make this work if I took my act on the road and moved back, moved back to, to Oregon, which is, you know, my home state and I, I love it here. Um, uh, so I moved back home, uh, taking the gamble that I would be able to continue to work long distance um, for DC, and I'd done some work at Marvel at the time too. Um, and the, again, this is before there were there was an internet. There were long distance phone calls. FedEx was just starting to come in, and the first fax machines were just starting to hit. So the idea about being able to send art back and forth from coast to coast and stuff was just kind of uh, kind of crazy for most of us. Um, so I, I knew it was kind of a gamble to see if I could make this work long distance. Well. It worked out okay. I was continuing to work smoothly and steadily for DC. But that same year was when Dark Horse Comics was just getting started. It was just an accident of timing that I moved back to Portland and I was at a comic and I had been invited to a guest at, at, at a local show shortly after I moved back here. Um, and these two tall guys came up and introduced themselves to me as I was sitting there at my table with some of my warlord original art out in front of me trying to you know sell it to fans or whatever uh it was mike richardson the publisher of dark horse comics and randy stradley his good friend and at the time his um it still is his i guess his right hand man at at, at the company but they were they were just they were introducing themselves to some of the local artists and um uh, wanting to get us to do some work for their 
you know, quote unquote, little startup black and white comic book company. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking, well, I don't know either of these guys. I've never heard of Dark Horse Comics. Um, what are the chances they're even going to be around a few months from now? You know, I'm doing a regular monthly book of DC Comics. I'm kind of, you know, I'm writing on cruise control. <laughs> but um, they, uh, mafia style, they sort of made an offer I couldn't refuse. They said, if you come and work for us, we'll let you do whatever you want and we'll pay you. <laughs> and I said, I'll never hear that sentence again in my life. Um, <laughs> and I was right. So um, I, uh, again, I was reluctant. I, you know, I was unsure. I mean, I had, I had a sure thing. I had a bird in the hand, you know, a regular gig. And I was enjoying, I loved Warlord. I loved drawing that book. I mean, I, 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 um, I enjoy superheroes, but in a lot of ways, my first love and passion is, uh, you know, high adventure comics, you know, uh, Flash Gordon or Robin Hood or Tarzan, things like that. And I was doing Warlord, which kind of is, all those things kind of rolled into one in a way, you know. Um, but the thought of doing something that I could create and draw, you know, and, and in sort of fashion and shape an entire world myself, that was pretty damned appealing. Um, and I just, and I kept thinking, well, it's an opportunity. When am I going to have a chance to do this? But in order to make it worth the risk, I felt I am going to have to create my dream project you know, that would make it worth taking the risk of, of, of going over there and trying with them. And so I said, well, what would my, what would my, what would my dream comic project be? Uh, science fiction, because that's my favorite genre. Um, and since I'd had some experience working on the barren earth with a, a, a story that had a, a female lead character and in the science fiction setting, something like that sounded really great to me. And there just weren't opportunities to do female driven action adventure comic books. So, uh, these very few. Uh, especially when uh, I wanted to be as realistic and believable as possible, which means she was going to have to dress appropriately for her job. And I wanted it to be a bounty hunter because I also like Westerns a lot. And I thought that would give the series a broad enough umbrella that I could have her do all kinds of things. And uh, anyway, so that's, that's what I fashioned. I put it together. There was absolutely nothing commercial in that pitch. You know, science fiction comics weren't big. Female-driven action <laughs> wasn't big. It was going to be for a little black and white comic company. Uh, all these things were not marked in its favor, um, and and maybe had cooler heads prevailed, they would have said to me, "Ron, this is a very nice little idea, but we don't know how to we don't know how to make you know how to sell a book like that or something." But uh, maybe in that flush of uh, youthful enthusiasm themselves, they said, "That sounds fun. Do it." So then I had to figure out how to do it. I had only written a few of those short stories in the back of Sergeant Rock before, so. I was going to have to try to fashion an entire world now because part of me loved books like Dune, you know, with these science fiction classics that sort of start off with a character, but, but expand, had this sort of epic yeah, scope and scale. Yeah. And it's dense. And, uh, and that I wanted to do, I was very ambitious. So I wanted to do something like that. Um, but I was smart enough to know that I didn't have the chops, the writing chops and the writing experience to really pull that off at once. So, um, so I thought, what I think I can tell, like a good sort of tight, self-contained action story here, I think I can land that ship. And so I, I, I crafted stories that took took small bites first, and I just and, and my my strategy was to pepper within those first stories some elements and references to like the bigger wheels at motion, you know, like out in the stars and other forces at play. So setting the stage for that, finding those seeds. 
and then figure so once I get a firmer handle on what I'm doing here and stuff, then I can gradually you know have her move into that larger world. So um, so that was the approach that I took when I was building the series. I, I, I sort of started cautiously, but with ultimately big reckless plans. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's to... awesome. Yeah. And, go ahead. Do, well, do you do you have any like advice for writers that are they're just starting off? On uh, on writing, you know, there. I mean, this is ultimately the 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 story that you really want to tell, mm-hmm. and you've you've very effectively added, in, like you said, seeds, left yourself breadcrumbs to to come back to later. And uh, h- how do you go about that? Is is that something that you consciously do, or you just go, oh, this might be cool later, or it, just a happy accident? Um. Sort of a little bit of both. Um, uh, so I'll try to give a few bits of it. Given the fact that as as writers go, I don't have the broad range of experience that some people who are, you know, exclusively comic writers do. Most of my work has been as an artist, drawing for other people, except for the intense writing and artwork that I do on Trekker. So given that as my little whatever disclaimer, or whatever, um, I would say a few things. One thing that I always try to say to young comic makers whether they're writers or artists is start small do a small scale story or project and finish it it will probably not be perfect <laughs> it probably won't then do another one <laughs> and it's just it's just baked into us i think as beings that we learn from our experiences and we learn more from our failures than from our excesses from our successes, <laughs> excesses is good too. Um, <laughs> but uh, so you know, start with this project that is small as exercises, because I've seen young artists who who come up and they're in the middle of working on their what they project to be like a four or a five hundred page graphic novel that they're telling, and young artists are still in a gestational period, and they're going to draw fire. 10 pages and then they're going to be a different artist for the next five pages and uh i would say doing smaller projects to i've get seen some that. of that it's <laughs> under your belt right yeah and then they'll they'll get you know 75 pages in the book and then realize that the first 20 pages don't even look and feel like it's the same story or from the same artist anymore so then what do they do go back and redraw those again uh and then let them get the book finished so short stories get the experience of Finishing a project, feeling what it's like to get it done, and being not 100% satisfied with it, but you've learned from that, and then you use that as a building block for your next project. That's one That's one thing I'd say. Um, and that's kind of actually what I sort of accidentally wound up doing with my own writing career when I first did a few short stories in Sergeant Rock under the very firm um, and experienced guidance of a great editor, Joe, um, who had great storytelling instincts and knew every aspect of comic making uh inside out backwards and forwards so you learn a lot that way um and then working with collaborators and drawing a lot of stories when you're reading scripts and trying to figure out how to tell that story you're really collaborating with that writer they may live in another state you may never have a conversation with them but you're having a conversation with the story that you're creating together and you get you get an instinct for what makes a scene work and how to pace uh a, a page how to structure a page and that sort of stuff so that experience all adds up um and then as far as whether to plant seeds in a story or not it, it really kind of depends on what kind of a story you want to tell but if you are looking for that sort of uh 
a larger scale story. Um, I think I stumbled onto a, a, an approach that, that seemed to work out pretty well for me. It let me sort of gradually develop as an artist and also gradually develop, or as a writer, I should say, and also gradually develop that world. So I was sort of easing my way into a world that I was creating, too. I had a basic, a very basic sketchy armature for the entire series, but it was really very, very hazy, you know. Um, now I'm, by now... I know what I'm doing and where I'm going and how I'm going to get there pretty much every step along the way. At the same time, the, that rough series outline, I leave plenty of openings for new ideas and, you know, varying it a little bit here or there as, as inspiration strikes and new ideas come up and maybe I'll be writing a scene and all of a sudden I'll see some new possibilities that, that can really work and help enrich the story more. So I'm not, um, I'm not overly committed to you know what's going to happen you know 75 or 400 pages down the road, <laughs> um, but but I have a pretty good idea about where the what the resolution of it's all of it all is going to be, and I use that as sort of like my uh, the lighthouse <laughs> that I guide my ship through the choppy waters. As long as I know what I'm aiming for, it helps to keep um, to keep you know a, a tight enough structure going on. So there, that's a big bunch of words hopefully that's there's something useful in that <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh it totally is and what one of the things that you mentioned um you, you know do something short and and you know finish it mm-hmm. uh i run a group on online called the comic jam and we uh we do one page comics and right. sometimes we'll go a little bit longer than that but one page is uh enough to um learn how to to work with another creator, whether you're writing or, or doing the art mm-hmm. and uh, also uh, a, a good way to tell a concise story and learn how to kind of cut the fat to, to get that done in one page. Absolutely. I, I, um, I often say to people that, uh, you know, I've been working this career a long time now and I think really maybe the single greatest skill well, it's the single greatest, uh, the, mo- the single great, most essential uh, ability to have to be an effective storyteller is selection of detail. You have to, you have to have a good feeling for what the story needs to have in it, and what is extraneous, what should be left out to make the story work as effectively as possible. Um, and that's true whether you're writing a 500-page story or a one-page story. Uh, I often, I often. Uh, use the example of a comedian who talks about how they will go up and uh, hone their act in front of a live audience and they'll try telling a joke. And if it, and if it doesn't get a good laugh, then they'll say, okay, does that, does that mean that there are too many syllables that lead up to the punchline or do I need to add the detail that it's a blue convertible? Does the word blue make it work better? The rhythm of it or whatever. And you've, and so as a, as a kid, you know, in comedy, it's all about timing it and, being precise it's 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 a very exacting form of entertainment as anybody who's tried it will tell you and um and it it comes down to that level of detail to find out whether you tell a joke in a way that just makes everybody in the room just explode with laughter or you might get a polite chuckle or two and it can be very small details but that's it no selection is is crucial and if you have to try to do as you just described tell us a story in a page you've got a be merciless in what you select to omit it may be a great idea or maybe a cool idea but is it making this story work in the time and space that you have to tell that story if not it's got to go 
Yeah, yeah, and and I see a lot of our our newer guys kind of freaking out over it because you, you only have so much real estate, but that that's the nature of the beast. I mean, if you're writing a novel, you could write it as long as you want, but if you're if you're doing a comic, you have to learn how to work within the the confines of the space that you're given. And um, I'm sure uh, it's kind of helped to direct um, many uh, uh, an ongoing story by uh, uh, we only have so many more pages left. <laughs> we need to we need to wrap this up. Right. Yeah, there's there's a lot of discipline involved uh, in making these things work out. And um, yeah, I, I was, was going to say something else, but uh, it, it just boils down to that. Um, you've got to have a knack for what what the story is and um make the pieces fit in um and oh that's what i was going to say when you do these these short stories you may at the end of the day feel well it, it's not that significant a uh, work or something but um you can you can it's like somebody that wants to go out and run a marathon you know <laughs> you don't start out your training by going out and running a marathon <laughs> you're in short races <laughs> and you gradually not only you're building up your stamina but you're learning learning how to manage your, your, your body through the, this longer course or uh, anything like that. You want to learn how to play a sport. You have to learn how to dribble the ball and you know, shoot a free throw before you go out and play a game of basketball or something. Yeah. So start with the small exercises. Uh, pra- practice lifting a five-pound weight before you try to bench press your, you know, your body weight or something like that. Um, it, you know, people get into art because and by i mean creative arts you know writing drawing whatever because it's passionate it feels exciting and fun and it's all of those things and also if you want to do it as if you want to do it in something that feels like a career you have to take a professional approach to it and 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 that means it's not just fun and games um if you approach it like it's all just going to be fun and games you're probably going to become bitter and disappointed and, <laughs> and disillusioned. Whereas if you have sort of a more hard-nosed or practical-minded attitude towards, okay, I gotta, I gotta strap on the armor and get in there and fight my way through the story again today. It isn't going to be any fun, but, but if you do that in, a, in an odd way, I think that actually can preserve at at your core the this that that sense of joy that you're first inspired by. But um, you can't indulge that too much. You, you've got to you've got to balance it. it. It is a job. It is a business, and it's also a joy-filled passion. You've got to find a way to make both of those things work to to sustain a career over a long time, and I think to produce work that is that is meaningful and lasting. The one thing I, I picked up, I, I talked to uh, Jim Zub not long ago, <laughs> and uh, and it's actually going to drop this this uh, Thursday, but. Um, so that'll be, uh, a week ago when this airs, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, anyway, he, you know, he's very creative guy, very, um, you know, done a ton of work and he treats it like, like you're going to the office. He goes, he puts in his time and, and he, he's that disciplined with it and it, it's really, uh, you know, c- kind of taught me a lot. Just listen to him talk about his uh, h- how he does it because he he takes it very seriously. Even though he's he's talking about D and D or uh, doing a comic for for Disney, it's you know this is his job and he is taking it seriously. 
Uh, is, yeah, is it hard? Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm, I'm just. I was just going to agree with you there. Go ahead. I'll let. I'll let you. <laughs> I'll let you ask the question. So, so when, when it comes to the um, the properties, I see you did a lot of the aliens and the predator, and uh, mm-hmm. even some Star Wars comics. Yeah. When it comes to stuff like that, it is it any is it hard to get into sometimes? Or do you ever have a a, com- a project that you have to do uh, that, that you're signed on to that it you you have to search to find the story? Um. There have been times that I've worked on on some jobs where um, if the question I I ask myself is what's the point of this story, that's that's not a good space to be in, um, because it's it's a tremendous amount of work to draw a comic book story and to draw it well, and when you're when you know why you're doing it and when you're excited about the story you're telling, it makes it feel like it's not work at all. <laughs> in, a, in, in a lot of in, in a lot of ways, it, it never feels like it's worth to draw a tracker. Uh, I mean, sometimes I have to labor and and pound my way through some challenging passages or or something. But I know why I'm doing it, and I'm 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 100 in. <laughs> um, but on some stories, uh, if the story doesn't, if I can't find the reason for that story to be there, if there doesn't seem to be a heart or a soul to it. Or if it's just not competently structured and told well, so I'm doing a lot of I would I call it storytelling damage control, trying to make the story clearer or more compelling than than seems to be inherent in the way the script is written. Those are hard jobs to do. Um, um, but on on something like um, the Star Wars miniseries I did, or I worked on three different Predator miniseries. And they were written by wonderful writers who had a, a great ear for the characters and a great feel for the worlds they were creating. And it's all about summoning up the atmosphere and trying to trying to hear the soundtrack playing as you're writing and drawing those pages, so that you're you're capturing and preserving and carrying forth the um, the spirit of the source material. And you know, when it's great source material, that's pretty fun stuff to do. Um, but when when I think most artists, there are a lot more days when we're not feeling inspired and we're at the very top of our game. And the difference, I think, between a professional and someone who is, you know, an amateur, for lack of a more elegant phrase, is the professional will say, I don't feel great today or I don't feel great about the work I have to do today but I'm going to do the best I have in me today. And for professional, their worst day, they're always producing work that's at a certain good, solid quality level. And if you're lucky and the stars line up and there's a day when you're just drawing, you're the best artist on the face of the earth, you know, that's awesome. It will not last. (laughs) The next day you're going to think, I can't draw anything worthwhile at all. But guess what? It's your job. So you toughen up and you just do it you do the best you can and you win some and you lose some um so yeah i mean yeah and this is you know this is the 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 pro uh, this is this is uh, joe had that sort of attitude there too you know there's sometimes when you're just trying to wrestle that damn page to the ground you're trying to make it work and it's just giving you no end of grief but you you don't say oh it's too hard today and you, and you walk away from it that's that's not how it goes that's not <laughs> that's not how the deadlines get met you know um so you have to have um sort of a hard-nosed attitude towards it uh, i often think artists we need to have a combination of sort of very 
very thick skin to deal with uh, the rejections that you get when you're submitting your work or, or, or applying for a position or sending in your portfolio um, and getting it rejected or a lot of criticism. And that's hard. It's hard to take that stuff. Um, so you got to be thick-skinned enough to, to take, the, take it on the chin, absorb the blow, learn from it, or ignore it if you think the advice wasn't any good, and then keep, <laughs> and then keep moving forward. And at the same time, you've got to be very thin-skinned. You've got to be... You've got to be open to your emotions and your instincts and willing to be that sort of vulnerable and put your passion out there and wear it on your sleeve, uh, realizing that sometimes it's going to it's gonna make a connection with somebody else's soul or heart or spirit, and you feed off of that. And and, and other times, it's it's going to seem to fall on deaf ears, and then you're just going to have to, you're going to have to accept that, too. So, um, yeah, so it, it's... Uh, it's uh, it, it it ain't for everybody. I'll put it that way. Oh yeah, and and it's it it's it can be a grind. And then you like you're doing now. You're uh you're working on your um your dream project, and and you're still carrying it on. And that's so inspiring to me as as someone who is you know wanting to to eventually uh, go that route. So um. Is there anything else you, you want to talk about uh, con- concerning Trekker? Because that's 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 why I want to uh, what I want everyone to know about is is how awesome this book is going to be. Well, thanks. Um, well, I can talk about Trekker till the cows come home, but I'll, I'll, <laughs> I, I promise I'll try to be brief. So um, I, I'm trying to remember what we've covered already. The, the main thing is uh, that I want would like people to know is that uh, the comics that I feel the most passionate, the, the, the stories that I feel the most passionate about, the ones that resonate and connect the most with me are ones where there is a character or a group of characters that I feel, that I, that I believe in, that, I, that, that feel like real people to me and that I care about. And uh, what I, my starting point with, which again, it's a series that has a lot of action elements to it and science fiction elements to it and kind of like a big vision and stuff. But it all starts with this character of Mercy St. Clair. I, I, I am incredibly gratified that there are uh, readers, women and men, will come up to me at conventions and they'll say, I read this book and I love Mercy. Uh, doesn't mean that she's perfect. And I mean, she's sometimes she's irritable and she makes bad choices and that stuff. But but I think what they mean by that is they believe that she's she's a she's realistically she's portrayed like a human being. Um, so that's my starting point. And then I want to take that human being on a series of adventures and journeys and have her grow and evolve uh, and 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 experience and learn things. And I, and I think that's the most thrilling journey we can all be on is because it's the one that we all are on together. Um, so that's that's the real passion. It's What's happening to Mercy now? What's what's the next step for her? And at the same time, part of me is still a twelve year old kid that loves explosions and lizard monsters, <laughs> blasters. <laughs> Who so doesn't? Trekker is my, yeah, exactly. So you know, um, so uh, again with Trekker, I'm I'm trying to have it all. I'm trying to tell the the, the Flash Gordon or Star Wars sort of swashbuckly story that 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 any kid should love, you know. And I'm also trying to tell a, a much more sort of human long form sort of coming of age character of destiny sort of story too. And that has, that's full of great visuals and vivid characters and moments of joy and sorrow and heartbreak and all that stuff. And my passion to, 
try to keep doing those stories well and maybe build on them and get a little bit better in each story um, hasn't left me at all. And uh, uh, if, if, if readers get any sense of that coming off of the page, I'm, I'm hoping they'll find it a worthwhile experience. And that's, and that's sort of the feedback I've been getting. So I feel incredibly grateful that the stars lined up for me in a lot of ways. I mean, I've worked really hard, uh, but I've also been really fortunate like I said, sometimes being in the right place at the right time, having the right conversation with somebody, um, having a few, you know, have, having the kind word when when I when I really need a kind word, and sometimes you know having the harsh taskmaster <laughs> pointing out a, a big word on the page. So um, uh, it, it's uh, it, it takes a lot of sticking sticking with it, and uh, uh, but I uh, I've got no regrets. I've never been. I've never felt more fulfilled and happy with with the work that I'm doing and where I'm at in my career than I'm right now. And I'm just anxious to keep going forward. And all I need for that to happen is for readers to find and embrace the book and and help help support me. Uh, I, I call it the Trekker community because especially when you're doing a book on Kickstarter, you know, I cannot do this alone. There's, you know, I, I cannot make a Trekker book by myself. I can write the stories and draw them, but I can't make the book and share them with people. And then make some money off of that, so I can, you know, keep eating oatmeal to keep doing stories. I need the community, <laughs> and I also need, or at least I, 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 incredibly value the 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 support that I feel and and hear and receive from that community. So, for those of you who have already found Trekker, thank you so much. And uh, for those who haven't tried it yet, I hope you might. I hope you might. I I, I'm, I I just know because I see it happen that there's a lot of people out there that. I think we really embrace the series if they uh, if they can get it in front of you know get it on their radar. And, so and Casey, this, oh, I'm I sorry. Just, I was going to say so, Casey. Thank thank you for for being one of the people who are helping me do that to try to put the book in front of uh, new eyes and get on more people's radars. Oh no problem. I'm I'm stoked about it, and and it's such a um, it's such a, a great opportunity for people to actually get uh, get those stories that they haven't seen yet that. Right. Uh, and from what I understand, you you you've written the successive volumes, the more recent volumes, as a uh, a way for you know anybody to to get in on the story as it goes. But uh, I'm a completist. I want to see everything. So <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. I'm and, the same way. I I really know because I've had the experience of you know picking up a random comic that caught my eye, and I read it, and I read the 24 pages or the 48 pages or whatever, and they say. I don't know what I just read. I mean, it was kind of cool in parts, but I, I don't know what the score is here. You know, um, with tra- with Tracker, I want people to come across any random volume. If it catches their eye, they pick it up and they read it, and they get a completely fulfilling story experience with that one book. And I want them then to say, "That was so cool! I want more," and then read more stories, and the world gets richer and deeper and fuller. And of course, yeah, the for me like you, the best is when you can. When you can get the whole enchilada, the entire canvas is there and available. So this Kickstarter is to to get all those earlier stories back in print, so people can get it on the ground floor and take every step of the journey right along with with Mercy and with the rest of us. That that's amazing. And you guys check out um, uh, tr- uh, TrekkerKickstarter.com and uh, go fund this book because it is fantastic. Uh, TrekkerKickstarter.com uh, Mr. Ron Randall, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Also, also, as an addendum, yeah. uh, 12-year-old Casey wants to thank you for the year 1994. 
uh, where <laughs> you did separation, both separation anxiety, which people still talk about today. Uh, and I, I haven't read it in so long, but the solo miniseries, oh, I don't know oh, that yeah. anybody's done anything with that character really since the nineties, but I thought that thing, that guy was, uh, Pretty damn cool. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. It, Those are both really fun jobs to do. Awesome, awesome. And, and uh, again, trekkerkickstarter.com. This book looks amazing, and, and I, I feel like I could talk to you all day, but I know you have <laughs> stuff to do, and uh, I have a four o'clock wake up. So, <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, uh, like I. One of the questions I had on the list was, you know, over the span of time that you've been doing this comic, the production of comics has changed so much, uh, mm-hmm. even down to how art is produced. And yeah. uh, do you do this digitally? Do you still uh, do you still work on paper with, you know, physical pens and pencils? Uh, the coloring, how that's done is completely different. And earlier you actually... Um, talked about uh, you have a flatter for the book mm-hmm. and comics coloring and comics printing. The whole thing has changed so much in the span of time that uh, this book has been going on. And that's yeah. so fascinating to me. And I'll shut up now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so do you want me to answer that question then? Or do you want uh, to save it for another discussion? Let, let's, let's save it for another discussion because I, right. I'm <laughs> – I will keep you talking all night and I, I don't want to, I don't want to wear out my welcome. And uh, I, I really want to have you back on the show. All right. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll come on and do a, do a shop top, uh, shop talk episode next time. Maybe <laughs> I would love to M- Mr. Ron Randall. Thank you again very much. And uh, you guys go out um, uh, trekkerkickstarter.com. That's where you need to go fund this book. Let's get this thing going. All right. Thanks so much, Casey. All right, have a good evening. Bye-bye. Awesome. So, you know, Kendrick, we had talked about having Ron come on sometime with you and me and talking about just, like, old, like, what was it, um, old sci-fi comics or something like that. And Yeah. yeah. I, I, I talked about it. He's, he's still all game to come on and do that. We just need to get it scheduled. Well, remember, he talked about his favorite book yeah. when you and I and him were on for one of his Kickstarters. <laughs> one of them. Yeah. <laughs> And I can't quite remember. It might have been the third appearance back from this one. Mm-hmm. And we went and found the cover of that book and then put it side by side with his St. Mercy book, his, yes. one of his Trekker books. And it's almost the same cover. And he was like, oh, my God, I can't believe how close <laughs> that was. Remember, he got all excited on Twitter and yeah. wanted to keep that. We're like, of course. I mean, we just we just ripped it off of Google. <laughs> we just took it from the Googs. You know? Yeah, we took it from the Googs. <laughs> We googed it. <laughs> we googed it. But yeah, it, it's it's so cool. I, I love to have one. I love hearing his history. I mean, not just his. I love hearing everybody, anybody's history in the creator world. But somebody yeah. that I, somebody's work that I actually enjoy, like Ron Reynolds, is even more exciting because I I've enjoyed their work for a long time. So it's good. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's like insider insider views. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always really good. I, yeah, that was a great interview. Uh, thanks to Casey. Thanks for Ron for for putting that together. Uh, we really really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, guys. All right, man. Well, I think I think we're show. good. I it's usually show, give man. an obligatory go check out our back catalog, but I feel like I've done that a bunch. Yeah. So just go check out the back catalog. There's <laughs> going to be something you want. 
I'm not gonna do it, but here I'm gonna do it anyways. You right, right? <laughs> Just do it. Damn Whatevs. Whatevs. Alright guys. Don't forget to open the mind. And read more. And guess what is on Patreon.